Ja, mit Batteristen auf dem Zeller. G'day everyone, welcome back to Swiss Pats. I am Susie Lyon and for the first time in 11 weeks, I am being joined by a co-host. Welcome Gary. Thank you, Susie. I am Gary Colin. Yeah, you, uh, you've, you've lent your voice to Swiss Pats um, a couple of times now. You've done an interview, you've done an intro for me, so now you're sitting across from I've me. I've been broken in, and uh, but I haven't been broken, thankfully. It's, uh, <laughs> Not yet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Wait till you've worked with me for three years, you'll leave like Don did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did I mention? No. No, 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 don't do that to me. Not going back. If there's any place I'm not going back to, it's the United States. Especially yes. not right now. Yes, but yes, <laughs> yes. We don't have to get into that. So. We've got a great interview coming up for you on this episode. Shireen is joining me. Uh, she is a coffee roaster. So she's going to tell us about her journey from the US and all the way to Papua New Guinea and why she went there and what she did there and how it has shaped her to be the coffee roaster she is today. A very, very good interview. So I'm looking forward to bringing you that. But that's going to come after me and Gary discuss life in Switzerland. Life in Switzerland. How is your life in Switzerland? Well, I'm like trying to avoid going out because every time I do, there's like so many people and I'm convinced that everyone's just forgotten that there's a pandemic on. They have. They, I, I haven't seen a mask in quite a few days. Uh, I was just at the park with my boys this morning and not a mask in sight. No social distancing in sight, uh, except to us. People were probably worried uh, about me just uh, keeping my boys as far away from everybody else as possible. Um, but we did feel safe. Uh, and um, yeah. Well, I, um, I do this weird thing when someone's coming towards me. I like stop and stand back and like shrink against the wall. <laughs> and I get the oh, weirdest looks. <laughs> yeah. Like I get like, why are you trying to get away from me? And I was like, I, cause I don't want coronavirus. That's basically it. So honestly, I try to avoid going out, but obviously I have to sometimes. I go to the grocery shop and I have been into town. Basel might be small, but it is um, full of people mm -hmm. <laughs> when the shops are open. Well, yeah, I mean, we have Altstadt. I went for a run this morning and it's, you know, it's just, all, and, I, and I thought this might be the perfect time to go running in the Altstadt with all the very, very narrow streets. Um, thankfully, there was nobody there. Uh, but the nice thing running these days is uh, you approach anybody and they just, they cross the street. They give you a wide berth, which I, I kind of like. Yeah. I that is nice. So Gary, let's let's talk about you and me because I wanted to mention about how much of a small world it is. Yes. <laughs> so I know you because our kids went to the same school. Right. But there's more, isn't there? There's yes, there's there's quite a bit more. I think I feel like there's something between our spouses. That <laughs> um. <laughs> you make that sound uh, quite uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. We're going to have to explain ourselves. Yes. Well, uh, my wife uh, works for Susie's husband. Yeah, it's such a small world in Basel. Everybody knows everybody. We literally cannot escape each other. And, th and this has nothing, and this is not a nepotistic thing. I am not here sitting here at this <laughs> microphone 
because uh, there is uh, this working relationship between our spouses. We've no. just known each other before we even knew that be- long right. before they even worked together. That's right. We, we would talk to each other on the tram and they didn't even work together then. But it, Basel is so small. It's like the third largest city in Switzerland. It's still tiny. Yes. You can literally run into someone you know at every turn. So I have to always be careful because I'm always like, if I have one of my like moments where I get mad at the neighbors or something, like literally everybody will know. And this happened the other day. I was going to ask. Yeah. So I put a post on Facebook because we're thinking about buying a house and I wanted to like, you know, just kind of get my feelers out there about renovation and mm-hmm. what people have done. And of course I saw this post. Yeah, I was going to say, I bet you All expats are on the same sites. Yeah. Uh, uh, say well, what everybody else is saying. One of the neighbors messaged me. One of the neighbors. Hi, Susie. I'm your neighbor. I live at number 70. I'm not even joking. I was like, holy crap. Basel <laughs> is so small. Like what if I'd put something like personal or sensitive on there? The whole neighborhood would know my 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 uh, can anybody, private life. Can anybody recommend a good therapist? Yeah. Oh, Susie. Yeah. Oh, hi. Yeah, of course. What's wrong? You want to oh, go for a yeah. walk? You know, I have noticed that you've been uh, <laughs> yeah. a little bit uh, unsteady lately. So. so I've now decided to delete Facebook because... <laughs> no. Yes. I, I, I can't... It's so small. No, Basel is so small. You do not seem like the type of person that can step away from Facebook. Oh, man. Well, that means I need to. That means I definitely need to. Well, we'll see how long that goes on for. Yeah, exactly. We'll have to do a follow-up on this. That it, there's been multiple times I've deleted Facebook from my phone. It's always come back. Uh, but you kept it on other devices, obviously. Yes, uh, exactly. Uh, hmm. Let's talk about coronavirus this is something i hate talking about so and i have avoided it that's why my intros have been like three to five minutes long instead of uh 15 minutes long things are opening up things are opening up in some very uh some very interesting ways yeah we've had kind of like everything being closed then slowly things opening like the restaurants and now on um, the 6th of June, 300 people will be allowed to gather. Oh, really? 300 people? 300 people in public and private. Wow. So If I only knew that many people. Exactly. So now <laughs> people will be able to go to very small concerts. People will be able to go to the theatre, probably the cinemas as well. Um, the restaurant restrictions are going to be lifted. Zoos are going to be open. Sports events are going to be on. However, how do you go to a sports event if the contact sport is not allowed? Well, it's interesting that contact sport is not allowed, and yet the one thing they made a point uh, to say will be opening again was the um, is the legal prostitution. That's right, and they've even come out with a a bunch of like suitable sex positions that you're allowed to oh, be really? in. Oh, really? Yeah. No. These are like the 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 way that you should. Uh, successfully cohabit with somebody uh, hmm. uh, without worrying about coronavirus wow i i didn't know uh yeah it's a whole it's a whole thing so basically it seems to me like everything's opening up and uh, you know those that use the services of prostitutes will be allowed to if if that's open up then i have to imagine everything in the country right will now be uh uh uh, exactly now be allowed again except contact sport Right, 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 right. Well, that's, you know, that's that could be... Well... I'm not sure why contact sport is not allowed, but... 
sweating on each other, maybe. Maybe. But then again, prostitution. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's not go into that. <laughs> no. Yeah, no yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's get to today's episode with Shireen. Thank you so much, Shireen, for coming on, and thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to load download the episode at all the places that you can. Obviously, you're listening, so you've already downloaded it. But like me on Facebook, like us on uh, Instagram, and share Just it with like you. us. Just like. Please like me. <laughs> and share it with your family and friends. And thank you for listening. Let's get to Shireen. Yodley. Hey everyone, thank you for joining us. Today we have Shireen Moyad. She's a coffee roaster. She writes and she roasts. So thank you so much, Shireen, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I'm super excited to learn about your life's journey because uh, you're a little bit of a, uh, a person of the world. Uh, when I asked you where you're from, it's kind of like, well, I'm from all over and you have lived all over as well, haven't you? So why don't we start yeah. at the beginning? What is your story? Where are you from? So I'm, I'm actually half German, half Iranian, uh, but my parents met in Germany after the war and they had their own migratory path, which eventually led them to the United States. So I'm a U.S. citizen and I grew up in the U.S. Yeah, from the age of four onwards, I, I grew up there. And whereabouts in the U.S. were you based? Um, in Chicago. My dad was a professor at the University of Chicago, so on the south side of the city. In fact, um, in the Obama's neighborhood, uh, their family home is just down the street from where ours was, and their kids went to the same school that I went to. Oh, that's awesome. There you go. You live yeah. fame to fame. <laughs> Rubbing shoulders with the Obamas. Exactly. What is it? Seven degrees of separation or whatever that expression is? Yeah. Exactly. So technically, I know the Obamas now because I'm, I've met you. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so your story takes you from Chicago all the way to Papua New Guinea. So what, what happened there? What, what led you to Papua New Guinea? So I had done um, an undergraduate degree in anthropology and South Asian religion. And um, for that, I did my college year abroad in India. And when I got to India, um, I realized uh, the, really the, the full face of, of the world's issues, of poverty, of things like that. And I, I felt that anthropology was going to be a quite useless subject to do anything meaningful in the world. And so I came back and my parents being academics, they insisted that I continue on to a higher degree instead of just um, working. And so I opted for a master's program in development studies. And for that, I needed to do... Um, a uh, practicum somewhere for my master's thesis and I ended up um, getting an internship on a village-based water resources project in the highlands and the mountains of Papua New Guinea in the heart of the coffee growing region of Papua New Guinea and I was meant to spend a year and a half on that project and then return to the US and I was posted um, <clears throat> with an anthropologist there um, and I did not enjoy the posting. I did not enjoy the project and being incredibly young and silly. I didn't know what else to do with myself. So I gave up my master's degree to the dismay of my parents um, and stayed on in Papua New Guinea and got a job with a local trading company that happened to have, amongst many other things, um, coffee plantations and an exporting company. 
and they, I think quite quickly, they recognized that I was um, interested, engaged, I spoke the local language fluently, um, and that I wanted to learn things, that I was desperately keen to learn things. Um, and so they bought, uh, there were at the time, there were only two little local um, artisanal or co cottage industry roasteries in the country. And they bought one of them and said to me, um, turn this around. We want it to be modernized. We want it to export um, and we'll put you in charge of it and cut your teeth on this. Um, and at the time, as I was living on one of the company plantations, and again, because I spoke the local language, I was already in charge of the plantation. Um, and then they gave me this little roastery to look after. And indeed, I turned it around. It became quite an export success story. We were exporting into coals and woolies in Australia and uh, to Woolworths in New Zealand, to supermarket chain in Fiji, Vanuatu, New Caledonia. So, uh, yeah, so that was the trajectory, how, how I ended up in very brief format, how I ended up in New Guinea. So it's not like a traditional path into coffee. It's not like you went, um, okay, this is the, I'm going to go to Papua New Guinea to do that. But it, it just sounds like that you got into an area that, um, that was known for that. And did you feel like you loved the country, but hated the masters that you were doing, the project you were doing, but knew you wanted to be there? Or was there like a, a confusion about whether you should stay or not? Um, Oh, you know, when you're young, you're so pig-headed. If your parents say, don't do it, then you say, well, that's right. exactly what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it was ever really that conscious of a decision. I mean, life's a great adventure when you're 24 years old. Right. And um, I think I got there and I, I learned quickly that the anthropology path was not what I wanted to do, that the development studies um, was not going to work out along the, the lines that I had imagined. Um, but I quite literally didn't know what else to do with myself. And this seemed like a great old adventure. So, you know, as you do when you're young and silly, I just stuck with it and, and ended up loving what I did and really feeling that, um, uh, you know, in a country that is not underdeveloped in the traditional sense, it's, it's a country that's rich in natural resources. It's incredibly fecund. It's incredibly fertile. Um, it's not, you know, it's not like people are starving um, for lack of um, resources there. Um, it's more that the country was underdeveloped in um, in the the ways and the means and the skills of the of the the twenty first century world, right? So the private sector serves this role there of of providing jobs, obviously in the in the formal economy, and also providing training and teaching people skills that. Um, come from the business world so being in roasting really or being in in this um in this company allowed uh, an insight and an access to what i felt was more meaningful for development for that country so in a roundabout way i ended up doing what i had set out to do in my studies anyway and um yeah i mean the coffee was a success for putting new guinea on the on the export map and that was something that i um, that I appreciated and remain proud of to this day. And were your parents based in Chicago this whole time that you were in? Yes, they were. So did they yeah. get to the yeah. point where they were like, all right, you made the right move? Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I think it's only, it's only now, um, 
My dad passed away two years ago, but my mum, I think now as I have, have continued with this lifetime career in coffee, um, that she's realized that I really achieved something through uh, the, the roundabout way that I entered into the coffee industry. Because most people, as, as you yourself have said, start out as baristas in coffee shops somewhere in the first world. Um, and I did it completely the other way around. I started at the farm level. So it was completely reversed, which has actually um, served me very well in my career in the coffee industry. Um, and I think now, um, as, a, as a, an, a mature adult and at the, you know, at the, at the full uh, bloom of my career, if you will, my mum finally realizes, wow, okay. So even though I counseled her against staying and tried to force her to come back, um, uh, I can see that she actually, um, you know, parlayed that into a career. So, yeah. Well, I think uh, we all have to let our kids do some things without our uh, intervention sometimes, but it's as a mum of uh, an 11 year old, it's very, very hard. <laughs> yes. It's very, very hard to let them, uh, let them do. I can't even imagine when she's, when she's an adult, when she's 18 or 20 and I have to bite my tongue and say, okay, yep, yep, just do what you want. So yeah. um, you did, I just briefly want to ask you about learning the language because you said that you, that you learned the local language. What, what language is it that you, that you learned there? I learned Melanesian pidgin or talk pidgin. Um, there's about 800 different indigenous tribal languages there. And there's three different lingua francas. There's Melanesian pidgin, there's English, and there's Motu on the coastal region. And in the Highlands, it was Melanesian Pidgin. That was the, the lingua franca. So I learned that. I, I didn't learn the local tribal language, um, Tok Goroka. Was that difficult? Like, was that the, in your mind, did you know that you were going to have to, to learn the Melanesian Pidgin language? Or was it just a, something that happened because you were there for it so was, long? Yeah, it was just something that happened because not everybody did speak English. Um, so, yeah, in fact, I would say of the older generation, most people don't speak English and only some of them speak um, talk business. So, you, yeah, you kind of have to if you live there. I think it's uh, definitely an interesting language to, to have under your belt should, uh, should anybody ever need Melanesian pigeon in, in Europe. <laughs> you can be like me, I speak that. <laughs> so I'd like you to take us uh, from Papua New Guinea to, to the rest of your journey. You, you did go back to the US at some point, but you also spent time in, um, in Singapore. What, uh, what led you to, to leave Papua New Guinea and, and explore other places? Yeah, so I, I was in New Guinea for 11 years. That's actually the longest I've ever lived anywhere in one uninterrupted spell. So I, I do have a profound love of and gratitude to New Guinea. Um, and I identify with it strongly in a way that I don't with other countries um, because it was so formative to go there at such a young age. Um, but after 11 years, I sort of realized, well, wow, you know, I, I don't know anything but New Guinea, and I really want to get out and explore the rest of the world a little bit um, and have perhaps a bit more carefree of a lifestyle than you do when you're, you know, running a plantation and a coffee roastery at a very young age. So eventually I found um, an incredible set of circumstances in a roundabout way. I found a job in Singapore. Um, specifically, it was I, I was traveling to go on a month-long 
high altitude trek in Bhutan. It was when Bhutan had just opened. So we were one of the first tour groups in, hiking groups. Um, and it was led by World Expeditions from Australia, actually. And you couldn't get there directly, obviously. So I stopped overnighted in Singapore and there, through connections, found somebody that was setting up um, a coffee roastery and they needed um, a coffee roaster and somebody to actually establish and commission the roastery for their chain of coffee shops. Um, so I got hired to move to Singapore and commission a roastery and do the roasting and buying for um, an Asian family-owned chain um, of, a, of, it was a franchise for a US-based um, uh, a, a chain, a coffee shop chain. And then, yeah, and then I spent the next eight years in Singapore, um, loving it. It was completely opposite um, to Papua New Guinea. It was footloose, fancy free, you know, it was, although I was already in my thirties, it was living uh, the life of a 20 year old there. It was a beautiful place to live, an exquisite place to live. Um, and yeah, so almost eight years there. And then at the end of that, I, I, I finally, it was 20 years, away from my parents and I finally felt like my sense of responsibility was starting to kick in. Um, and then I had a, a job offer to move to the United States um, to be the coffee buyer for a chain of shops there, which um, was the, the predecessor to Starbucks, if you will, and uh, the original specialty coffee chain. Um, and yeah, I had this incredible job offer to, to buy coffees, to be the director of coffee and to travel around the world and to source their, their extremely high end, um, quality coffees and to gather the stories of the people who produce that coffee and to bring it back and turn it into stories for the marketing apparatus. So that was an unbelievable job and an amazing company. Um, so yeah, Singapore, then to the US, uh, seven years there. What, did you feel like um, when you went back to the US, that, did, did you have any feelings of uh, that, that that was home or did you feel like you had left home somewhere else? I had a very tough time um, with that because when you leave home at a young age, you have this, um, you have this almost formulaic vision of what home is. And I thought to myself, half passport will fit in. Right. Um, but <laughs> I arrived there, had passport and did not fit in. So I had rather a tough time. And I ended up um, really in those years making more friends overseas with my coffee suppliers than I did necessarily on the ground, excluding the coffee world itself. You know, the, the, the suppliers um, and the people I worked with in the industry itself there um, became very, very close friends and are still friends to this day. Um, but it's tough when you go back and you have this image of yourself and you say, well, yes, I'm American, you know, it'll be seamless. And it's not. When you spent 20 years away, um, it's not seamless. You become a citizen of the world, um, even, even where I suppose I always was anyway because of my parentage and my heritage and the fact that my parents were so nomadic. Um, but um, you realize that all the more so and um, that you, you fit into a global community, um, a world where, where different nationalities and languages don't get in the way of your sense of humanity and who you are. Yeah, it's, it's funny. We've uh, talked about similar things on Swiss Pats before, um, but I think one thing that maybe would be obvious to um, fellow Americans would maybe be your accent because I can 
uh, detect like Australian in your accent because you must have worked with a lot of Australians in Papua New Guinea. Um, obviously, you've got that German as well. So going back to America, as soon as you speak, people must, must have instantly thought, oh, you know, this is a, someone who's not from around here. And that is um, something that I personally have had to deal with when I first would visit back to Australia, I'd have a little bit of an English twang. It was much stronger at the beginning because I used to work in a call center. So I was talking to British people all day long and have to adjust my accent. And a lot of my Australian friends and family considered me no longer a part of the Australian group. And it's a, it's an odd feeling like, but I yes. am like, I've got the passport um, yeah. all of a sudden people are saying, oh, but you're different. You, you don't fit in here. So it's a, it's an odd right. feeling. A lot of people who would have that nomadic background must really, uh, feel. And, and, um, I don't know if it was a struggle for you the whole time you were in the U S or did you, did you get used to it? Or is that why you left? I, I mean, that certainly wasn't part why I left. I, I, I just, yeah, I, I couldn't fit in it. Had it been the job alone, there's, um, I wouldn't have because it was an incredible company and an incredibly strong coffee culture and really beautiful, amazing people who work at that company. Um, but yeah, it was, it was tough. You know, it's, it's the plight of the expat, I think. Yeah. So, so true. So did you, you said you traveled a lot and was, um, was, were you traveling to a lot of very different places or, or was it always the same sort of place to, to pick up those coffee beans from places that you had already decided on or were you discovering new places uh, every step of the way yeah no it was discovery every step of the way um and you know some of the the usual suspects if you will you know guatemala costa rica nicaragua panama places that were closer to home from california from where the roastery was um but also uh three weeks in yemen i was the first female buyer to my knowledge to to travel in yemen um, and to really, I mean, really get out in the field and see where our coffee was coming from there and to source new and interesting lots of coffee. Um, a lot of time in Ethiopia as well. So, um, yeah, it was the job was about discovering origins and discovering places where we could source unusual and very high quality lots of coffee. Um, of course, there was the more prosaic side of, you know, all of the contracting of buying and you know, working with suppliers to, to hedge and to fix and to, you know, establish our positions financially, et cetera, the, really the more prosaic side of it. Um, but the romance of it was, was finding incredible tasting lots of coffee and um, working to see how they would either uh, be roasted as single origins or put into blends once we got home. Yeah. So let's talk about coffee for a minute. Uh, what is it about coffee that that you love? What is it about the coffee beans that, uh, that have kept you in this career for, you know, decades? What is it about the, the beans that, that you love so much? Yeah. Well, look, for starters, I, I think even a person who doesn't drink coffee has to acknowledge that there is nary a, an aroma or a substance as powerful and perfumed and aromatic and seductive and tempting and wonderful when you first wake up in the morning as fresh roasted and ground coffee it's what i live for is getting up in the morning and smelling those beans after i've ground them it is just magic it's so fragrant um so from a, a purely sensorial point of view to me there's just nothing like coffee 
um, tea, you, you, you brew tea, yes, but you're not, you're not pounding or grinding the leaves that, um, you know, that, that emit some sort of aromatic magic the way coffee does. So coffee really is a sensorial pleasure. It's a treat. Um, when I go to bed or when I was still working in the office on Friday nights, I would go to bed joyfully just thinking about that moment when I'd be able to wake up again, make the coffee, crawl back into bed and, and, and read my book with the, you know, that leisure of a Saturday morning. So there's that side of it. But also um, I feel that I've had the good luck of ending up in an industry that allows me to um, contribute something to less fortunate parts of the world because by its very nature, coffee grows, well, with the exception of Hawaii or Jamaica, it does grow in, in underprivileged areas of the world. And when you're supporting quality coffee, when you're buying very high-end coffee and paying a, a very high price for it, you end up being able to put something back into these communities. So there's the satisfaction of, of pleasing your own sensorial quest for the perfume of high-end coffees, um, as well as knowing that you're giving something back because you are um, sourcing a product um, from the third world, if you will. It's, you know, you're not buying high-end designer clothing from Paris or whatever. You're really doing something that to me has a personal sense of meaning and, and fulfillment. So how does someone who doesn't know as much as you do about coffee buy a coffee that, that they know is helping a community? How do they know that the coffee beans that they're getting are, um, you know, not the people are being given a fair wage, uh, things like that? Because I guess there's all of the stamps that you can get on a coffee, uh, thing but i mean a lot of people don't look at them do they and so what would, what would one look out for to say okay i'm going to be more conscious of of what i'm purchasing when it comes to my coffee beans yeah i think and and this isn't necessarily practicable for everybody but i think the best way is to know your roaster hmm. and make sure that your roaster is somebody who has traveled to coffee origins and understands where that coffee is coming from the value chain that brought it to them and that they're buying responsibly. Um, yeah, there's certifications out there, of course, but I think your best bet as a consumer is make sure you're buying from somebody who, who knows where their coffee is coming from. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, certifications are great, um, uh, but there's still not any guarantee. You know, I don't think there's any guarantee um, when you're buying things that, that have their provenance from far away. Um, so you have to do your research. It's about yeah. knowing where it, it comes from each step of the way to, to be yeah. to ensure that, that what you're getting is, yeah. is a genuine product. Yeah. And I think, you know, with the exception, I, I have to make the exception of Nespresso here because their sustainability program is second to none. It's just unbelievable what Nespresso does for sustainability. But otherwise, I think you're better off sticking to smaller um, coffee roasters and, and, people who do posit their business on knowing the length of the value chain. So, so Nespresso is what brought you to Switzerland or Nespresso is yeah. what uh, you did once you got here? No, Nespresso recruited me to come to Switzerland. Um, and um, I, my position there wasn't straight up coffee anymore, although I was obviously on the coffee team. Um, it was more of a storyteller's position where um, because I knew origin and um, the countries where the coffees were coming from, it was positioning um, 
or telling the stories that were behind the coffees that they roast and um, illustrating that, you know, it's not just a glamorous face. It's actually a company that has a huge amount of expertise behind what they do. Um, and it, as I said, already said, a tremendous sustainability program. Yeah. Um, and I want to, I think in my mind, I can imagine what a roaster is, but I want you to tell me exactly so that just in case I've got any misconceptions about what it is that exactly that you do, what, what am I getting when I contact a roaster and, and get my coffee beans from a roaster? Um, a roaster person, a roaster individual is somebody who operates a machine that has um, a heat application that transforms the raw green coffee beans, which have very little aroma and you, you can't really brew them into a beverage. It's the person who transforms those beans into the magic of the beverage. Um, so it's a, a combination of skills. It's a combination of understanding how the heat transfer impacts the beans that you're roasting, but also knowing the beans themselves. What is the inherent nature of the beans that you're roasting and how do I manipulate the machine to, um, to, to affect that transformation, to create the aromatic output that is going to make for a special drink, for a special beverage. And that's what you love, that process. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. I, um, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I adore it. I mean, it really, it has me travel in my mind's eye. And I, right now, because you're Australian and you, you understand the proximity of New Guinea, I take that as an example. When I roast it, in my mind's eye, as I'm smelling, because I'm checking the beans constantly throughout the duration of a roast. So um, from the time when there's very little aroma through to when they start to smell like, a little bit like straw or hay or toast or or toasted rice and on into the, the, the darker roasted caramel and chocolate notes throughout the length of the roast, I'm smelling, I'm listening and I'm watching the beans. And as I smell, I think smell is perhaps the most potent sense. It really takes me back to New Guinea. It really, it transports me in my mind to whatever country that coffee has come from. It's, it's a trip, it's a journey. Um, and it's transformational for me. It's, um, it's like, um, what do they call it? Uh, not mind travel. I can't think of the word right now. But anyway, it, it transports me to someplace else. And it, it's in using all of those senses that you enter this ethereal world of aroma and memory and senses and cultures and peoples and languages and colors that um, you've experienced throughout the course of your life. So, yeah, I mean, that sounds like a fun journey to be on on a, yeah. on a regular basis. So I can imagine why you love it so much. Yeah. I want to ask you what it's like in Switzerland um, for coffee drinkers, um, because Switzerland doesn't strike me as a massively coffee heavy drinking place. Like, yes, you can get coffee everywhere, but it doesn't seem to be like a specialty. You know, you've got Italy, obviously it's very important there. It seems less important here. Do you find that? Or is there, um, is there a, a culture here that I just haven't come across myself? Yeah, it's, I find it fascinating here because um, the country is so heavily influenced by Italian coffee drinking traditions that that's what is equated with quality coffee. So in um, the US, UK, Australia, um, Germany as well, 
to a lesser extent. And in those countries, we had what were called the first, second, and now third waves of coffee culture, where um, the second wave, which started in California and, um, and uh, Seattle in the US, was a reaction against commercialized coffee, whereby um, uh, certain coffee roasters, and, and particularly the person, the company that I worked for, started to investigate individual coffee flavors and origin flavors, and really delve into origins and become more specialized instead of thinking about coffee as a, as a basket of commodities, if you will. And so they were what um, was called the second wave and they developed now into, into what's the behemoth of um, Starbucks or, or the larger chains today, Costa or whatever. Um, as a reaction against those um, chains, what developed initially in the US and then later elsewhere, um, was what's called the third wave. Smaller craft roasters, artisanal roasters, who went even further in their explore, exploration of individual farms, etc. What's super interesting about Switzerland is that they seem to have bypassed that, that um, transition between the second and the third wave altogether. They went from having a culture that was heavily influenced by Italian consumption right to the capsule because this is the home of the capsule this is the home of nespresso so it's been a different um a different storyline and a different trajectory of coffee here altogether which i personally find that really really interesting because now you have smaller roasters myself included opening up um and it's almost like um we we missed out on one generation here of the of the, of the evolution of the coffee industry that has taken place in other countries and do you have a strong opinion on places like Starbucks, Pete's, um, you know, Nespresso? Are, are you, you, you speak quite fondly of them in a, in a way that you um, seem to appreciate their origins and, and what they did. Um, it, does that, has that continued through time as they've grown and gotten bigger or ha has your opinion on them changed over time? No, I, my, my opinion has um as if anything, my esteem for them has, if anything, uh, risen because they've scaled quality. You know, they've gotten so big, and yet they've um, and yet they've kept quality in the picture. Um, if I look at Pete's, I mean, Pete's was the, and that was the company, by the way, where I was the coffee director, the coffee buyer. That was the original specialty coffee company, and they've scaled it. They've um, they've managed to keep a quality um and even you know when i was there there was never any restriction from the finance department on what i could spend on coffee the the prime objective was just get coffee that customers will love and finance will figure out how we back that up um, and if i look at starbucks today you know what they've done with um, the reserve concept is it's you know it's homage to um and it, 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 a world of refined specialty coffees that um, they've scaled in their own unique way. And Nespresso, I mean, again, not to harp too, too much on the point, but what they've done for farmers and at Origins, just second to none. Nobody does what Nespresso does at, in Origin countries for farmers. So, yeah, no, I have huge respect for those companies. As a former Nespresso drinker, I have a coffee machine now, so I don't use Nespresso anymore, but um, I always found them really helpful when you'd go into the shops they always seem to know something about the coffee so obviously and i'm just talking as a consumer it seemed to me that um the the um the information was passed along it wasn't um 
just written on the board and you know there was like a whole process with Nespresso first I'd get a pamphlet in the post that said they had a new one and to come and try it and then I would go and try it and they'd tell me everything about it so it 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 never really felt like it was um um just thrown out there with Nespresso Mm -hmm. and and it seems like you're you're kind of backing that up and saying yeah they really did their research and 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 did it properly Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that was an interesting part of my job because, um, you know, I wrote the back end stories. Um, but by the time that trickles down to a boutique level, I'm, I'm happy to hear it was, <laughs> it was still being communicated well to you because, you know, you might have started with a, a five page document that, that gets ever and ever shorter till you, you know, you end up with three keywords that the consumer um, hears because there's a, a 10 second window when you can catch the attention of the consumer as a, as a boutique uh, salesperson. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, you, to know it translated. Yeah. For you, it's smell and the smell of coffee really gets to you for Nespresso. It was always the colors on the wall. If, as soon as I saw a new color, I was like, I gotta have that color. <laughs> that, <laughs> that was my, uh, they, they were successful in, in that sense with their marketing. Cause yeah. as soon as I saw a new color, I wanted it. It wasn't about the smell for me, but for my husband, it was all about the smell. But for me, yeah. the color of the capsule. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Strong marketing team. Very strong yeah. design place yeah uh, Shireen I want to ask you um, about how you decide what your favorite coffee bean is is there hundreds of coffee beans that you're like this is my favorite it's the best and I want to drink it every day or is there an ultimate an ultimate bean yeah so I guess you're a parent you know which is your favorite child yeah <laughs> <laughs> they're all- they're all my favorite. <laughs> They're all my favorite child, exactly. So, look, I mean, I'm always going to say my favorite coffee in the world is Papua New Guinea, just because I I am so loyal to the country, and I do believe they have extraordinary coffee there. Um, they did not um, change over in in the 1970s and 80s. A lot of origins were changing over to dwarf plant varieties that were more productive. Um, could be planted with less shade, um, were perceived as being more disease resistant, et cetera, et cetera. The downside of those varieties was that they didn't necessarily have the cup quality of the older plant varieties, the, the, some heirloom or just more archetypal old plant tree varieties that, that have an elegance in flavor. Papua New Guinea, on the whole, in their plantations, has not done a lot of renovation over the years. Um, which means that you have these beautiful old varieties which are just more refined in flavor. So a part of me says that it's my favorite origin simply out of loyalty to the country, but also because it's true, the coffees are gorgeous, just gorgeous. Um, next to that, I mean, every, every origin that I've chosen in my roastery, I've chosen simply because I love them. I, I go on the assumption that if I love the coffee, somebody else is going to love it as well. So within the limited um, array that I can have as being so small, I've chosen countries that I really, really adore. And I have to say that in Latin America, Guatemala uh, to me is, is, is the runner up to Papua New Guinea. It's an extremely complete coffee. Um, 
it has a complexity in the cup quality. It has fruit and wine notes that are, that are counterbalanced with really deep milk chocolate notes. It's, it's a lovely, lovely origin. But I'd have something like that to say about every one of the origins that I've chosen. So again, which one of my favorite, which, which one of my children is my favorite? They're all my favorite. Yeah, it's hard to pick one. I, I mean, the yeah. way that you talk about beans, I can tell that there's a real passion there, but honestly, you're making me hungry. Just uh, <laughs> I think, oh man, these coffee beans, I'm going to have to really give my coffee a whiff next time I brewed one because I, yeah. it just, um, I imagine it, it's all because of your extensive career in coffee, but um, just the, I've never even thought about the, the kind of things that you can smell in a coffee and the, and the way it can make you feel. So I'm looking forward to brewing a cup. I actually have some Guatemalan beans at home so i will definitely try with that scene as it's your second favorite but i mean i don't i've never seen papua new guinea beans so is that someone could i contact you and say hey get me some some papua new guinea beans is that a absolutely and i i will send you some after this um, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> i've so, got the beans i have right now are um the largest grade so often I, I sell my coffee on the weekends um at the carouge farmers market in geneva and uh, often people look at the the papua new guinea beans in a glass and they say my god i've never seen such large beans before so i buy or this current lot that i have is is what's called the double a grade and it's a plantation called sigri um which is i think it's the largest remaining um, single estate coffee in Papua New Guinea. It's a, a very, very old and, and very well curated coffee. Um, but yeah, you can you can really see from the the size of the beans that this is an exceptionally well prepared coffee. Um, oh, I'm so I'll see you Thank you. I'm looking forward to trying it. So you you mentioned a, a market that you sell the the coffee beans that you roast at. Um, can you tell me that again? Yes, it's called Carouge. It's um, a, a neighborhood in the city of Geneva, which is, it's an old Sardinian village, beautiful, beautiful, charming little village with lovely little row houses, um, looks utterly Mediterranean. Um, and they, on Saturdays from eight in the morning till two in the afternoon, they've got a farmer's market and we've got to stand there every Saturday. Uh, awesome. Great little place, very artisanal products that are sold there. Um, organic vegetables from uh, this beautiful farm um, in the canton of Geneva and other other locally produced products that were there yeah that sounds absolutely amazing it's uh we're all gonna have to have Swiss holidays this summer so it sounds like uh, that might be <laughs> one of the places on my to-do list now if absolutely. people are not based in Geneva how can they get in contact with you about your coffee on our website so www dot sweet dash bean dash coffee dot com sweet bean coffee is the name of the company excellent oh shireen it's been so good to talk to you about something that you're very very passionate about and it's made me want to go and have a cup of coffee so i think it's, <laughs> uh, I think it's time to, to go brew one on my coffee machine thank Lovely. you so much for joining us on swiss pats thank you thank you very much Yummy, bon, taste it, open, set it, do 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 do